Welcome to the serialized audiobook Nocturnal by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. This novel contains adult situations, violence, and is meant for mature audiences. Nocturnal is available in print, ebook, and unabridged ad free audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash nocturnal. Chapter 24 Pookie and His Partner Pookie Chang had seen a lot of nasty things in his day. He was no stranger to dead bodies. Back in Chicago, his second homicide case involved a man who had killed his mother, then tried to dispose of the body by chopping it into chunks small enough to fit into the kitchen sink's garbage disposal. You're never the same after you see something like that. It changes you. He'd handled cases that showed just how evil people could be, cases that made him doubt his faith. After all, how could a loving God allow things like this to happen? Yes, he had doubted God, doubted his own ability to do the job, and on more than one occasion he doubted the justice system itself. But in their six years of partnership, he had never doubted Brian Clauser. Not until now. Cops on the scene had cordoned off Meacham Place in just one of Post Street's three lanes, allowing the one-way morning traffic to continue along. Two SFPD cruisers were parked at the curb. Two more were parked on the sidewalk, one on either side of the alley. A half-dozen uniforms milled about, keeping people away, calmly instructing pedestrians to use the other side of the street. Bubble lights flashed blue and red. The morgue van sat silently, like a scavenger waiting for the CSI personnel to finish their work before it could claim the corpse as its own. Pookie stood on the sidewalk outside the now-open black gate. He stayed close to Brian. Badges hung from both of their necks. Pookie stared into the alley, watching crime scene investigators Sammy Burzon and Jimmy Hung do their thing. They wore dark blue windbreaker jackets with SFPD in white across the back. What they found might nail Pookie's best friend to the wall but the truth had to come out. Brian looked horrible, his green eyes and pale white skin a harsh contrast to his dark red beard. The guy seemed to be in shock, but this could not wait, could not be put off until he felt better. Tell me again, Pookie said. He spoke quietly, loud enough only for Brian to hear. Where were you last night? Brian tilted his head closer, responded in kind. My apartment. I went straight there after Cheryl sent me home. Pookie remembered Brian falling asleep on his desk. Brian, who'd never missed a day of work or even exhibited the slightest sniffle. You were sick yesterday, Pookie said. Feel the same today? Worse. The whole body hurts. I think I have a fever or something. Pookie nodded. Could the fever be so bad that Brian somehow went out last night? during the dark hours the guy loved so much, and butchered this kid? And on top of that, didn't even remember doing it? So you went home, Pookie said. What happened then? I went right to bed. I slept pretty hard, I guess. The nightmare woke me up about 2.30, maybe 3 a.m. I woke up, drew some pictures, went back to sleep. And no one to verify that? No girls, neighbors, landlords, nothing? Brian chewed on his lower lip, shook his head. Of course the guy didn't have an alibi. He lived alone. 
He hadn't even been on a date since he'd moved out of Robin's place. Brian had led them right to this corpse, even described the state of the body. For him to have that kind of detailed knowledge, he had to have spoken with someone who saw this go down, someone who actually did it, or, or the obvious answer, Brian had done it himself. Impossible. But was it impossible? People called Brian the Terminator for a reason. He was cold, detached, and most important, deadly. Had the Lanza scene pushed him over the edge? Pookie couldn't believe that. If it weren't for Brian Clauser, Pookie wouldn't even be alive. Maybe Brian was a bit robotic, sure, but he was also everything a cop should be. Brave, dedicated, and self-sacrificing. He wasn't a murderer. Not a murderer, maybe. But he sure is a killer, isn't he? Pookie couldn't think of anything else to say, to ask. He looked back into the alley. The boy's body still lay under the tree's shade, lit up every few seconds by the flash of Jimmy Hung's camera. The severed arm was nowhere to be found. In its absence was a ragged, gaping, negative space wound that ran from the neck down to just under where the armpit would have been had the arm still been attached. Part of the collarbone jutted out, red-streaked white gleaming bright every time Jimmy snapped another picture. On the brick wall between the thin trees, two-foot-high reddish-brown letters spelled out a message in graffiti, graffiti made with the victim's now-dry blood. Long live the king. Pookie gently nudged Brian, pointed to the letters. And that? Ring any bells? Brian looked, and when he did, Pookie saw the telltale signs of recognition. The words had meaning to Brian. Would he talk about it, or would he lie? Something like that in my dream, Brian said. Can't remember exactly, but there were some words, or thoughts, maybe. They were banging through my head like someone was sending a message. A message like a phone call? Brian shook his head. No, not like a phone, like inside my head. Crazy, right? Yeah, crazy. That was the word Pookie kept trying to avoid. It was more palatable than psychotic, but still not a term one wanted attributed to one's best friend. Pookie nodded toward the boy's body. Maybe before we found him it would sound crazy. But right now I'm ready to consider anything. Tell me more. Brian licked his lips. Pookie waited. Something about a king, Brian said finally. No, not a king. The king. You sure? Was that what you heard in your dream? Brian Clouser turned away from the gory scene. He stared at Pookie. Brian didn't look all blank and emotionless anymore. The guy was scared. Pooks, you're talking to me like I'm a suspect. There was no sugarcoating this. It was all Pookie could do not to call for the other cops on the scene, have them help slap cuffs on Brian and take him in for questioning. You are a suspect and you know it, Pookie said quietly. You led us right to the body. You even told me what we'd find. Brian shook his head. Just a dream. Just a fucking dream, man. Shit like this doesn't happen. It can't happen. Pookie glanced around at the uniforms, seeing if any of them were trying to listen in. They weren't. Just keep it together, Brian. 
Don't say another word about it. We'll figure this out. Pookie started to walk away, but a strong hand grabbed his upper arm and pulled him back. Pookie turned to face Brian to see the look of anguish in his partner's eyes. Do you really think I could do something like this? The logical part of Pookie's brain said yes, but that too was crazy. Why the hell would Brian have killed this kid? Where was the motive? If I didn't consider you a suspect, I wouldn't be worth a squirt as a cop, and you know it, Pookie said. You shouldn't even be standing here, and you know that too. You should be in an interrogation room. But you're my friend, and I've been doing this job for a long time. We'll figure this out. But for now, just shut up and don't touch anything. Pookie looked back into the alley and watched the CSI team. Sammy walked slowly with very small steps. He had his head down, a camera around his neck and in his hands. When he reached the far side, he would turn 90 degrees to the right, still looking down, take one step, turn another 90 degrees, then start slowly recrossing the alley. Every three or four steps, he would stop, point his camera down and take a picture, then bend to pick something up with tweezers. He'd drop the object into a brown paper envelope, seal it up and label it. Finally, he'd write on a small folded piece of white cardboard and put that in the object's place. Jimmy hovered around the body, shooting the grisly corpse from multiple angles, far back, tight shot, practically sticking the camera into the missing shoulder, and so on. The blue windbreaker was too big for Jimmy's tiny frame, making him look even smaller than he was. Sammy stopped walking. He straightened. Still looking down, Sammy used the back of his gloved hand to wipe a few strands of blonde hair out of his eyes. Moving only his head, he looked left and right, taking in a wider area. He looked up at Pookie and Brian, then carefully walked out of the alley. Sammy, Pookie said. How's Roger? Pookie didn't feel like making small talk, but it was an automatic impulse. Sammy's brother had been in a car accident a few days ago. Pookie didn't remember where he'd heard that. He had no idea why such information always stuck in his head. He's all good, Sammy said. Out of the hospital tomorrow, I'm told. As for your one-armed bandit back there, I got an ID for you. Sammy reached into a pocket and pulled out a plastic bag with an open wallet inside. A driver's license showed a kid with thick, curly black hair. It seemed impossible that this young, healthy face had once belonged to the one-eyed, mutilated corpse in the alley. Oscar Woody, Sammy said. Pretty sure that's him, based on the stats. We'll get confirmation as soon as we can. He's had that license all of two weeks. Happy 16th, eh? Pookie watched as Sammy turned the wallet for Brian to see. Brian's eyes widened just a little. Had he recognized the picture? Sammy put the wallet back in his pocket. That body is a real piece of work, eh? Pookie nodded. You can say that again. What do you think ripped that kid's arm off? In the absence of any industrial machinery, I'd say a big animal. We found some brown hairs about an inch long. Looks like dog fur to me. Pookie looked to the body. The kid had to be 5'10", maybe 175 pounds. That's not a toddler, Sammy. Tearing an arm off ain't no easy thing. How big would a dog have to be to do that? Sammy shrugged. Pitbull, maybe? Probably more like a Rottweiler. Got a Roddy that weighs 130 or so. Could happen. Mastiffs can top 200 pounds. Tear that arm off easy. 
possible, but still. The patrol officers had already canvassed the area looking for witnesses and come up empty. Hard to imagine no one hearing a scream if a 200-pound dog had bitten the kid's arm off. I'm guessing the dog had help, though, Sammy said. There's a security camera mounted up the building. The nice building, not the old laundromat. It was pointed into the alley, but it's broke to shit. Looks like it was recently smashed. If the camera had been working, it would have caught everything that went down in the alley. Maybe the camera had been broken just before the murder. Maybe this wasn't some random act of passion. Maybe the killing had been planned. Pookie would track down whatever footage it had recorded, of course, but he already knew he'd probably find nothing of use. Was Woody alive when the arm came off? Oh, for sure, Sammy said. Blood splashed around like a fucking fire hose, man. That's what I wanted to show you. Come here and take a look. Pookie started following Sammy, then stopped when he realized Brian had remained on the sidewalk. Brian seemed to be waiting for permission. Pookie tilted his head sharply toward the alley. Get over here, now. Pookie Chang had seen many things that can and did change a person, but so had Brian Clouser. Maybe Brian had seen one thing too many. Brian walked into the alley. Pookie let him pass, then followed. He wanted to keep Brian in sight at all times. Chapter 25 Nothing to See Here Brian followed Sammy Burzon into the alley. He felt like he was returning to the scene of a crime, a crime he'd committed. But he hadn't done this. Couldn't have. Sammy held up a hand showing Brian and Pookie where to stop. Then he pointed down. Not with a single finger, but with a palm-up, sweeping gesture that said, Take a look at all this. I can see how you guys missed this one, Sammy said. I mean, any bigger and it wouldn't have fit into the friggin' alley, eh? On the pavement were two drawings, done in tacky dry blood clotted with dirt, pebbles, bits of flesh, pieces of trash, and even a used condom. Each drawing was about fifteen feet wide, as wide as the alley, large enough that Brian had mistaken the bigger picture for random individual streaks of blood. Two big circles, both with lines through them, and was that a triangle? Lines also running through that, maybe. The image clicked home. Clicked hard. Brian knew one of the images all too well, because he'd made it himself. And there was a second drawing, one he didn't recognize. A circle with what looked like a lightning bolt through it, and two half-circles on either side. Interesting, Pookie said. Isn't that triangle drawing interesting, Brian? It looks familiar to me, but I couldn't say why. Brian said nothing. He had to force himself to take a breath. He'd sketched that same thing, and here it was, done in the blood of a murder victim. His body hurt. His face felt hot. He just didn't want to think about any of this for one minute longer. You two are great observers, Sammy said. I mean, these drawings are only fifteen fucking feet across, eh? Piss off, Sammy, Pookie said. Not a good time for sarcasm. Brian stared at the two symbols. They were different, but both had that curve with the two slashes. What did it mean? What did any of it mean? And there's two drawings, Sammy said. But anyone could have missed them, right? I mean, you two geniuses could... 
Pookie turned fast, grabbed the shoulder of Sammy's coat and shook, jostling the smaller man. I said shut up, Sammy, you got it? A shocked Sammy nodded. Pookie let him go. Brian looked around. All cop conversation had stopped. Everyone was staring at Pookie. Pookie, who never lost his cool. Pookie, who never said an angry word. Pookie saw the other cops looking. He turned, glared at Brian, then walked off to talk to the uniforms. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Brian walked back out the black gate, careful not to tread on the blood drawings. He stood on the sidewalk, alone, wondering if Pookie was already regretting the decision to believe in his partner. If so, Brian couldn't blame the man. He felt a breeze on his face. He wiped the back of his hand across his forehead. He was sweating. Finding the body had brought on a big blast of adrenaline. Now that the surge was fading, his nausea, aches, and chest pain once again fought for attention. He felt ten times worse than he had that morning. Pookie returned. He was smiling, but Brian could see it was fake. Pookie was putting on a show of normalcy. As far as the other cops would see, it was just good old Brian and Pooks working the case and doing their thing. Nothing to see here. Please move along. The driver's license picture, Pookie said in a whisper. You recognized that kid, didn't you? You knew that face. Brian thought of lying, but nodded. Yeah. From? Brian shrugged. From a dream, man. I don't know what else to say. Pookie pursed his lips and nodded, an expression of anger, of frustration. Go home, he said. Just for a couple of hours, okay? But I have to help you with this. I have... I'll finish working the scene, Pookie said. We'll have to talk to friends and family, so I'll come grab you before it's time to bang on doors. We're not that far from your place, so just walk. I think it's best if you're not here right now. Pookie's stare was hard and unforgiving. This wasn't open to debate. There had to be an explanation for this, but neither of them had any clue what that might be. Ryan turned and started walking. Chapter 26 Robin and Spoiled Milk Robin Hudson finished tucking her hair into a hairnet as she stood in the prep area, watching the van back into the loading bay. The back of the van opened. Robin was surprised to see Sammy Burzon and Jimmy Hung get out. 
they removed a cart loaded with a white body bag. As crime scene investigators, Sammy and Jimmy usually didn't help bring a body back to the morgue. That was normally done by Robin's co-workers in the ME's office. Robin smoothed out her disposable gown and hung a digital camera around her neck. She slid her face shield rig onto her head, but left the clear plastic flipped up. The men rolled the cart into the prep area. Fancy meeting you two here, Robin said. Hello, pretty lady, Sammy said. Do you mind if we help with this one? We got a hundo riding on what did the killing. I say Rottweiler, a big dog. Jimmy is betting on a more exotic animal. Tiger, Jimmy said. Definitely a tiger. Robin nodded. Sure, you can assist, whatever floats your boat. Awesome, Sammy said. I'll load the crime scene photos into the system as soon as we help prep the body. He held up a clear plastic bag containing a blanket. This was covering the Vic. He set the bag on the end of the cart. Robin leaned down to look. Inside the bag, she saw that the blanket was covered with short, brownish hairs. No wonder Sammy thought it was a Rottweiler. She picked up the bag. I'm pretty good at identifying dog breeds from fur. I'll take a closer look after we finish with the subject. You guys get ready while I handle the x-rays. Robin shot x-rays while the corpse was still in the body bag. The digitized images immediately showed major damage. Missing arm, jaw dislocated and fractured in at least two places. Missing teeth, shattered right orbit. Bright white bits glowed from within the soft, multi-hued gray representation of the lungs. The boy had aspirated some of the teeth. She finished the x-rays and rolled the cart into the prep area. Sammy and Jimmy were waiting. They had donned their own protective personal equipment, gowns, face shields, and fresh gloves. You boys bring me the nicest pictures, she said. Just what I needed to pep up my afternoon. Sammy smiled. That's what we do. Great case for your first day as the boss, lady, huh? I'm not the boss, lady, guys. It's only temporary. Jimmy shrugged his little shoulders. We'll see. I love Metz, but a heart attack at his age? Hard to come back from. He'll be back, Robin said. She wanted the top job, absolutely, but she knew she wasn't ready for it yet. Just another year or two with Metz, maybe. Then she would be. Okay, she said. Let's get this party started. They unzipped the body bag. Instantly she smelled urine. Strong and somehow unique. The same smell as when Metz brought in Maloney. He's a ripe one, she said. Must have had a full bladder when he died. Sammy shook his head. Guess again. The perps pissed on him. Or the Rottweiler did. Tiger, Jimmy said. When a body died, the muscles in the bowel and bladder relaxed, often resulting in a corpse releasing feces and urine. That was why she hadn't thought twice about Maloney's body smelling as it had when Metz brought it in. But this scent was so unique. Aside from this corpse and Maloney, she'd never smelled anything quite like it. Was it possible Maloney's killer had urinated on him as well? This could help us, she said. If it was the animal's handler that urinated on him, we might be able to get something out of that. Sammy reached into the body bag and pulled out a bloody, dead hand. They ran fingerprints, then weighed and measured the corpse. We have a preliminary ID from a driver's license, Sammy said. Oscar Woody, age 16. We'll get confirmation quick. He's got a record in his printer in the system. Already? 
She found it endlessly sad that kids went bad so early in their lives. Had it always been that way? Probably. It just seemed more drastic now. As she got older, teenagers seemed progressively younger and younger. Jimmy cut away the victim's clothes and started placing them in bags. We got what we think are saliva samples, he said, all over the shoulder area, probably from the tiger. Rottweiler, Sammy said. Robin, thanks for letting us help. If you want to prep your table, we'll bring him in to you. Robin nodded. I'll go do that. She walked out of the prep area and into the long, rectangular, wood-paneled autopsy room. Five white porcelain exam tables lined the room's length, the table's long sides paralleling the room's short sides. At the moment, the table sat empty. Robin had seen many days when all five tables were in simultaneous operation, with even more bodies backed up in the big walk-in refrigerated transit locker. Most morgues used stainless steel tables. The Hall of Justice, to which the morgue was attached, had been built in 1958. This examination room, original white porcelain autopsy tables and all, hadn't changed much in the last fifty-odd years. Metz often told her that, other than the ashtrays being removed from the walls, it basically looked the same as it had on his first day of work four decades earlier. Sammy and Jimmy rolled the metal cart into the room. They slid the body onto the first porcelain table. As seasoned as she was, Robin couldn't help but wince at the carnage. When the arm came off, the outer third of his clavicle had been sheared away. The stumpy bones stuck out of the ravaged pectoral. Blood on the clavicle's jagged end was already a dry brown. She saw scrapes on the broken bone, gouges from teeth, probably. No teeth marks on the face, though. That damage had been done by blunt force trauma. Fists, elbows, feet and knees, most likely. Severe lacerations covered his abdomen. Severed pieces of intestine dangled out like bloody gray-brown sausages speckled with yellow globs of fat. She realized that the intestines had been pulled out, torn up, then crammed back in. That was the work of a person. Animals didn't stuff your guts back in for you. Any evidence that could lead to the perps? Tons, Jimmy said. Sick bastards used the Vic's blood to write Long Live the King on a brick wall and make some weird occult drawings. It's all in the photos for you. Good, Robin said. So where's the arm? Sammy shrugged. We couldn't find it. Jimmy checked his watch. Well, that does it for me today. I'm heading home. Robin, if you have any questions, call me, but I'm sure Brian and Pookie can answer anything. The sound of his name stopped her cold. This is Brian's case? He and Pookie were first on the scene, Jimmy said. I'm out. Later. Robin threw the departing Jimmy a half-wave. She pushed away any thoughts of Brian Clouser and focused on her job. She did a slow walk around the white table. Oscar had been a big kid. 5'10", would have been about 180 pounds if the arm had been attached. Hopefully the arm was discarded somewhere and would soon turn up. If the perp still had it, that probably meant he was keeping it as a trophy. A trophy taker could mean a serial killer. Or, perhaps even more messed up, the arm had been an attaboy treat for the attacking animal. Soft tissue damage looks like it extends to the back, Robin said. Let me look at the scapula. Sammy, can you flip him over? He did. The scapula remained intact, scraps of tacky human meat still plastered to the bone. She saw two long parallel gouges about three inches apart, 
matching lines that curved and zigzagged. She lifted her camera, leaned in, and snapped a picture. Sammy would have a complete set of shots for this and everything else, but Robin liked to record key areas with her own eye and angles. She let the camera drop to her chest, then reached out and gently probed the torn shoulder. You guys are probably right about an animal, she said. These parallel gouges would be consistent with marks made by canines, like something bit him and shook him. Sammy smiled at her. Like I said, Roddy, eh? She gave a noncommittal shrug. Maybe. She looked at the wide space between the parallel teeth gouges, tried to imagine the size of a dog that owned those teeth. Jimmy might win the bet after all. I won't rule out a big cat, as weird as that would be in the middle of San Francisco. Fascinating, Sammy said. You know, this sounds like great conversation material. Why don't we talk about it over dinner? Say tomorrow night? I'll pick you up at eight. Robin looked up from the body and smiled. Sammy Burzon, did you guys really have a bet on what kind of animal killed this boy? Or did you connive your way in here to ask me out on a date? He smiled and held up his right hand. Guilty as charged. I know this cafe on Fillmore with outside seating, so we can take your dog. She laughed, felt her eyebrows rise in surprised admiration. Wow, you're good. Invite the dog, too? He gave a half bow. You have to know the battlefield, my dear, but you make it pretty easy. Your desk is covered with pictures of the pup. He's cute as hell. She. Sorry, she. So how about dinner? Sammy was a handsome man. He had rugged features, although maybe he spent a little too much time on his blonde locks. Robin's mother had always said, Don't ever date a man who spends more time on his hair than you do. As a criminalist, Sammy knew the horrors she dealt with on a daily basis. They had that in common. And he'd catered to her near-obsessive love for Emma. Obviously, he was a perceptive guy. She looked back down to the corpse. Sammy would undoubtedly be a great date, but she just wasn't up for it. Thanks, but um, I don't think I'm good dating company. Come on, you and Brian split up six months ago. Live a little, eh? She felt her anger rising, but fought it down. He was asking her out, after all. You know how long it's been since we broke up? Sammy smiled. Of course. Six-month rule. I couldn't ask you out for six months out of respect for the Terminator. Her smile faded. Don't call him that. His smile faded as well. He knew he'd made a mistake. Sorry, he said. I mean, it's not really an insult, you know. She nodded. She hated the nickname. It insinuated that Brian was cold-blooded, a machine that could just kill without remorse. She knew that wasn't true. Still in the bizarre world of male logic, the nickname was a compliment, and Sammy hadn't meant anything by it. She tried to change the subject. And what do you mean by the six-month rule? You can't ask a brother's girl out for six months, Sammy said. It's man law. The six-month rule is kind of like an expiration date in reverse. Men. Impossible to understand. So, I was sour milk and now I'm fit to serve? You got it. How about instead of telling me no, you just take a rain check on dinner? Fine, I'll take a rain check. Sammy's wide smile returned. 
Works for me. Later, Gator. He walked out of the morgue. Robin wondered how many people knew Brian had moved out six months earlier. Everybody in the medical examiner's department, probably. And obviously even more than that. Big city, big police force, but still a relatively small group of people that dealt with a steady influx of dead bodies. She turned her attention back to the one-armed boy. The shoulder wounds were definitely from a big animal, but she'd test the collected saliva just to confirm it. She'd start with a short tandem repeat analysis test. The STR would come back within hours and provide a genetic fingerprint of the victim and the attacker or attackers, if those attackers were human, that was. That test would find 13 key loci in human DNA that she could run against CODIS, the FBI's genetic database of known criminals. Sometimes it was just that easy. Process the evidence, isolate the DNA, submit it to CODIS and get a hit. Robin hoped they'd get lucky and identify the killer right away. Such savagery was beyond even the normal gunshot, knife, and blunt force trauma deaths she dealt with all the time. This was part of the reason she'd chosen an M.E. career instead of continuing on in medicine. In a world heading down the drain, she was part of the solution. Her job was intel, really. Intel in the war against crime. She provided the data that helped the guys on the front line. Guys like Brian and Pookie. Brian. Not the time to think of him. He'd moved out and she'd moved on. Robin closed her eyes, cleared her thoughts. She had a job to do. And if someone actually had taken the arm as a trophy, a very important job. You have been listening to Nocturnal by Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. The Nocturnal Audiobook was directed and engineered by Corey Young. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine. Coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.